I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello. It is such an immense pleasure to be here. I've been hearing about Luke's book for probably the last two or three years and been fascinated from it by it from the beginning um, because it promised to and in fact does do something which is tricky, which is talk about nature without sanitising it, without making it seem as if it is always positive. It makes it a complicated thing. But it does the same with sexuality and with religion. So these three sort of huge subjects which are braided together in this beautiful book about Luke's relationship with Epping Forest. And we're going to dig into all sorts of different areas of that. But I think first Luke's going to just read a little bit for us. Yeah, I'm doing a reading, uh, a, a sexy reading as it's Friday night, quite a sexy reading. There's quite a lot of sex in the book, just to warn you. Um, actually, when I was coming out of the tube at Holborn, I came past Bloomsbury Square Gardens, which in the early 2000s was a very lively place about this time of a Friday night. I knew it well um, back then. And it's, there's a, a, quite a bit about the book in these kind of queer places uh, in cities, particularly London, and the role they played uh, for many men. So this is... Uh, I'm very depressed at this point, which is a sort of recurring theme of the book. And I decided to uh, go for a long walk along the centenary path, which goes, goes through the middle of Epping Forest. And I'm determined that going for a walk in the woods is going to sort me out. And this is what happened. I'd chosen to start my walk at the more urban southern tip of the forest, hoping that unfamiliar sights might help me shift my all-too-familiar mood. Taking a lungful of traffic fumes and turgid summer air and trying to set my mind straight, I stepped over the rough vegetation at the edge of the road by Forest Gate Station and strode out. Heaps of freshly mown hay were scattered across the path, golden in the sun and green in the shade. The ground looked bare around these islands and the short stubble was strewn with litter. I nearly trod on a road-killed fox its eyes and tongue rotted to nothing, the ruddy brown fur blending with the grass, its flesh, blood and organs already dissolved into the earth. A discarded crisp packet sat just above its head, pricked up like an artificial ear. On the far side of Wanstead Flats, the forest is crossed by a huge and noisy A-road interchange. The tunnel beneath it was full of crap and artificially lit even in the middle of a summer's day. 
As I squinted into the sun on the other side, what had been a quiet niggle started to get louder in the back of my mind. It was a thought that I tried to suppress. This was to be a purposeful walk, wholesomely fueled by sandwiches and apples. But it was becoming harder to ignore as I left the subway and walked onto the forest land. On the map, I was just a few centimetres from Eagle Pond, adjacent to Epping Forest's most popular gay cruising area. I ought to go and have a look, in the interests of research, of course. But my mind that day was not a sanitised laboratory. I wonder when this part of the forest became established as a place for men forced by law and religious prejudice into twilighting their sexuality to find a knee trembler under the hornbeam. How does Mother Nature call out to her dear boys? The first record I can find in the forest archives is a 1931 request to remove a hollow oak in Wanstead, yes, it, lest it start being used for objectionable practices. In our supposedly liberal age, it's all too easy to forget the ingrained prejudice, loneliness and social isolation that forces queer men to seek out places like Epping Forest and make them their own. Yet I wasn't in the closet. I was out as bisexual to all of my friends. I met plenty of men through work at gigs and clubs, though the only ones I ever de developed romantic attachments to always seemed to be straight. I didn't need to go to Eagle Pond or anywhere like it. Yet within me was a powerful drive that new places like this were out there and never more than a bus stride away, and I struggled to resist them. I peeled off the main path. It's the discarded soggy tissues that give these places away. White splotches against the undergrowth. Horny Hansels need only follow the trail to find what they're looking for. A bloke in a Tottenham Hotspur sports jacket walked past me, half looking at his phone. He headed under an elder and paused. I was well used to the coded signals, the furtive eyes, the brush of a hand against a crotch, the purposeful walk that slowed to a linger, but wasn't sure what he might be after. I walked away and stumbled into a pot-bellied man who was sitting on a log, not reading the metro. His intent was clear the moment he put his newspaper down, stood up and started after me purposefully, and I had to jink through muddy tracks to lose him. This was a labyrinth created by desire, and compulsion can make you walk in circles just as much as the distracting randomness of any forest. I stumbled forward, but the, holly, uh, the tunnel of holly swept me up like a fairground ghost train and brought me to a glutinous pop as a cough was hurriedly pulled from a mouth and four startled eyes turned to peer at me. <coughs> I apologised for disturbing them, but the sucky beckoned. I shook my head and walked on. I feel like the word jink, which is a classic of nature writing, has never been used in quite that way before. <laughs> we will get into sexuality, cruising, social isolation, but I wanted to ask, first of all, what was it about Epping Forest for you? What's your childhood relationship with it? Why was that the place that you turned to when things went bad in your life? I think it's my, fam my family from the Epping Forest area <coughs> grew up right next to it. And it was a very special place for me where we used to go to visit my granny who lived my by or my uncle and auntie. 
and it was it was beautiful. I grew up in the north. I loved the kind of Yorkshire countryside. Then we moved down south, and I hated the kind of home counties, boring sort of tedious small town. Um, and I wanted wild places. And Epping Forest was the one where we drive around the M25 and then come off the road, and you're suddenly in this bizarre landscape with all these strange trees. So it was kind of a childhood obsession and a place of great comfort for me. And then you know, the moving away from home and then coming to London. At first, I didn't really feel any connection to it at all. I used to go up every now and again, um, did some photo shoots for friends' bands there when we needed to create a jungle atmosphere. But it was when I kind of moved near the forest and was in a relationship that we kind of go up there a lot um, and I started reconnecting with it. But when that finished, and then I started uh, becoming quite obsessed with the place and started researching it and looking more into it. And then, then it became this incredibly difficult, strange thing where I think I was trying to reconnect with the childhood self and it wasn't happening. And that just made it all fall to bits. Because <laughs> the concept of the nature cure is so prevalent. It's, it's so much there under scoring a lot of the nature writing that's around at the moment. And I think you, you have really interesting ideas about why nature isn't necessarily a force for good, why it might be dangerous or threatening or unsettling for humans, especially maybe humans in those sort of dark states that you, are, you were in a state of depression. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not a case of it's good or bad. It mm. just is what it is. Um, but there is a, there's been a, you know, a whole industry, really, uh, mm. around making nature part of the wellness industrial <laughs> complex, almost. <laughs> Um, yeah. with things like, you know, even Instagram's at it, you know, it's all these memification of nature and the van life hashtags, you know, you will go into nature and it will cure you. And it's very sentimental, you know, the kind of woodcut world that mm. I find very odd because that wasn't the lived experience of the natural world for any of our ancestors um, who by and large would have been agricultural laborers and very poor and had mm. a very connected relationship with uh, the landscape but not one where they were kind of whimsically floating through it it was a place of hard labor and exploitation and definitely sex because if you were mm. all living in a probably worth a million quid timber frame house but then a tiny <coughs> hovel with the pigs living in half of it you're not going to be and your, your granny coughing out her last lungs on the <laughs> in the same bedroom as you, you're going to be going into the woods with your sweetheart to have sex and keep the family line going. And I find it very odd that that doesn't really seem to exist in the kind of modern, uh, contemporary experience of nature in a lot of culture. Mm. I've literally written down for the next question. It is amazing to me how absent sex is from nature writing. And that, actually, the more you think about it, the more strange that seems that it is this sort of idea of you go into nature, you have some sort of rapturous experience, you come out, but that doesn't involve the body particularly, and it certainly doesn't involve fucking somebody behind a tree. Yeah. But luckily you bring that back in. Well, yeah. And, and I, the exception I, I, is obviously Derek Jarman. Yeah, which um, and your, your intro to the um, Modern Nature reprint, you talk about that. Yeah. And, that. and that was definitely, Modern Nature was a big influence on me in the way Jarman writes about sexuality within the context of Han Hampstead Heath. But then, at the same time, I, I, I was, I, it's not just, uh, well, hey, feckin' fucking countryside. You know, the, the flip side to the kind of tweeness is not necessarily something that I wanted to overly celebrate. These places are incredibly complicated. Um, and dangerous. Very dangerous. I mean, and even if you're not sort of 
going cruising or something, even that is problematic within itself for many, many reasons. I was very conscious, you know, that bit's kind of an introduction to the cruising element, mm. but uh, it's a very complicated practice, not just for the people doing it, but for other people who use forests and woodlands where this goes on. And I, I just wanted to have some sort of nuanced engagement with all of that. And then I think another thing that's interesting, which sort of relates to that, is you make it clear how threatening, even in this moment in time, this supposedly liberal or perhaps less liberal by the minute moment in time, sexuality remains really threatening. And I think because you're writing about bisexuality rather than gay sexuality, you draw out things that I hadn't really thought about. And I wanted you to just talk a little bit about, I mean, we'll talk about other areas of sexuality later, but bisexuality in particular, why is that so threatening to people? Because it, it goes against binaries and mm. Which is sort of sexual culture is, yeah, and that, the, my frustration with binaries is kind of what inspired most of the frustration that led to the, to the book, but I think heterosexual culture has always been very binary, it, it's always mm. othered homosexual culture and then with the increasing acceptance of homosexuality, I think this gay culture is sort of picked up some of the same issues mm. and I can understand why there's frustration among and I think it's, I think it's different for men and women when it comes to bisexuality there are different mm, sure. issues facing bisexual women in terms of fetishization of bisexual women and so on but I can understand why for gay men it can and it can be really frustrating to see bisexual men because we pass you know mm. you it's you, you don't have to kind of come out in the same way you don't have to you're, you're, Be visible at all times. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're 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 not defined by your sexuality because not everybody is is going to know in the same way. Possibly, you know, if you're in a relationship with a with somebody of the opposite gender, you're still bisexual, but no one would know about it. Mm. And so I can see why it's threatening to gay culture. I can see why it's linked to this idea of being greedy. Um, I don't see why bisexual people are any more greedy or whatever than anyone else. I think it's just a weird, that's one that I don't quite understand. It's just, it's not everyone's randy, aren't they? You know, it's, it, it, I don't think bisexual people are any more randy, but I think there's a, there's a fear and insecurity, and I can understand that. And there's just not any role models. You know, when I was a teenager, you know, I wasn't, Bowie wasn't really that prominent a cultural figure like, like now. And people kind of went, like Freddie Mercury went from straight to gay to... Having AIDS and dead, and that was there was like, oh right, God, is that that's the that's the mm. binary. That's that's all there was really back then. You know, Brett Anderson was my hero, and he'd said he was said he was a bisexual man who never had a homeless sexual experience, and it was a bit, you know, have you not been to the lavatory, Brett, in public? Um, <laughs> but there was, you know, even with him, and I think that's that he was that was slightly taken out of context in a way that was used cruelly to him. But and Suede to me were a very bisexual band. The drummer was gay. It was incredibly, you know, the lyrics were very bisexual, and that's why I identify with them so much, and that's why they're so important in the book because that was it really. And I still, you know, there was that bisexuals TV program on recently, this dating show, and it just looked awful. It was just like one of these tawdry programs that really kind of reinforced all the stereotypes like you know why why hasn't anyone copped off with each other yet you know this sort of that really <laughs> grim cheesy dating program stuff that we have in popular culture but i'll stop now <laughs> talk about talk about the place of music in your life and in the book because it's it's a really large part of it not just swayed all kinds of different bands 
Yeah, as think, a sort of liberatory force? Yeah, well, I mean, it was as a teenager. Music was this sort of great emancipatory uh, thing for me and in this a total <coughs> escape and a way of creating new worlds and, you know, having new ob obsessions. I'm a very obsessive mm. sort of person. And then, you know, I grad gradually ended up writing about music largely because I, I struggled to get any other kind of job that would give me any reward. And I guess my dad's a preacher, preaches about God. I've ended up preaching about music. Apparently, some from people's reading the book, I've ended up preaching about God as well. But it was music's always been a huge escape, and particularly people like you know Cozy Fanny Tutti, such a recurring character mm. in the book, because she discovering her and how she lived was this sort of utter no compromise way of being yourself, and that was massive inspiration for me while writing the book. But I, I'm still it's odd with music; it just I, I find it vital for survival, really. Um, it's also how you link it to the forest, that there's this sort of tradition, which I certainly didn't know about, of kind of psychedelic music connected to Epping Forest, which I suppose is to do with coil? Um, I mean, the, the coil connection, not really to the forest, it was just sort of, it was happening in my life. But there is the weird um, sort of oh, that Genesis world, that, that the kind of industrial world does have all these odd connections to Epping Forest in that my dad and Genesis Peorage went to the same school on the edge of... Uh, and thus was forest. Luke created. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> and, and there was this sort of very odd thing that these two young children were in the, in the forest exactly at the same time, and, one, and they, they mm. saw the darkness and the, and, and the light and the strange histories, and they went off in two such different directions, or maybe not such different directions. They're both people who lived their lives in ways that most people consider bizarre and um, quite cosmic. Um, so that that kind of those two those two lives and how they parallel and change and intersect became a, a motif of the book. But then mm. I did spend a time living in a house that was connected to that world. It was um, this artist called Ian Johnston, who was a partner of John Balance from Coil, who was in Coil with Sleazy from Throbbing Gristle, and he, uh, there was this incredible house in Tottenham that I lived in on my own for a bit, which Ian looked after. Just everything was dark wood. There were no doors. Um, above the bath, there was this glass cabinet with tiny little figures in. There, there was all these Austin Osman Spare, uh, who's an incredible occultist, occultist <coughs> artist from um, England. His paintings all over the wall. Giant pair of brass cocks in in the bathroom as well, which I subsequently uh, was sort of connected to psychic TV and stuff. And it was just a really magical place. And I had a very odd, and I went. Um, Say what it was. Well, I love that story. Yeah, no, you have to buy the magical story. You need to buy the book, Frank. But, but that world was very because because of the sort of no compromise to to a destructive extent. You know, Sleazy and from Froggy Gristle and Coyle and John Balance from Coyle. You know, both died very young. But that the people the way they pushed themselves and lived an honest life that to me was actually very similar to a lot of the Christians that I knew and my parents, you know, mm. it was kind of starting to realise that there's actually these people aren't that different at all. You know, it was one of the most amazing things for me personally, the book was like Cozy's given us a quote, a lovely quote about the book. And then there's a vicar uh, who's read it and he absolutely loves the book as well. And if it was anything I was trying to do was to be able to say, right, you can actually have these two supposedly disparate women be really into Mm. this book and it, and it actually makes sense. 
which I think is a testament to its extraordinary honesty as well as lucidity. Do you want to do another tiny reading? I think there's, a, there's, there's going back to what we were talking about earlier about the kind of innocence of the forest and the way it's perceived and the tweeification of nature. I suppose this bit kind of connects to that. So I'm talking about the, uh, basically the, the Epping Forest was saved for the people of London by the Act of 1878. It was all being felled and then the City of London stepped in and rescued the forest and saved it for the people of London. And I sort of imagine what, you know, the, the connection, some of the connection between that and, and religion, really. I saw the great and the good of Victorian masculinity down in the Corporation of London with their stovepipe hats and sideburns as the elders of some strict religious sect imposing rules on the forest and the all-male keepers as their priestly enforcers. They gendered the forest, trying to do away with its potential for sexual disruption by equating it with innocence and purity and interference with it as defilement. The untouched forests of distant lands were described as virgin, when in 1896 the Daily News decried the most revolting scene of the East Affair in the forest, it used a city violating the feminised ideal of nature. Is it really worthwhile for the Corporation of London to allow another great fair to be growing up the skirts of their splendid great forest? Within these diatribes there lurked squeamishness at the sensuality of the forest and a desire to control it with patrician morality. What had been done there over the centuries was ambiguous and varied. The forest and newspaper archives tell of riots, unlicensed preaching, political agitation, robbery, drunkenness, illegal gherkin sellers, poaching, <laughs> blinding songbirds to use as decoy to attract and then cage more, gambling, prog rock concerts, female boxing, children dampled by a donkey derby gone out of control, dogging, Wiccan rituals, biker meeks, an unnatural's act with a sheep near Debden, poaching, crazed Aunt Sally's, perverts on bicycles, teenage catapulters of swans and the first motocross race. It was a history as vibrant and wonderful as that of any city of the world. And your own family history is really intertwined with that. So this is obviously, that, that paragraph is the product of months of deep archival research, I imagine. Yeah, I spent quite a long time in the really? uh, forest archives. Yeah. <laughs> Looking up talking. Yeah. Um, but you were also finding out stuff about your own family's really quite complicated history within the forest. Yeah, and that was it. one of the, the, the things that the, the book originally started off as this sort of social history of the forest and some of the context of that was going to be looking into this family rumour that my, we were descended from the housekeeper of a lord up at High Beach who'd mm. got knocked up uh, by the lord and they'd had a son who'd got promoted through the ranks suspiciously quickly mm. and had been a kind of illegitimate son of the lord. And so I looked into that and found that, that, that it was probably true, really. There's a lot of evidence that that was the case. Kind of hoping to write to the Lord Baring's descendants and ask for a DNA test, because I'd be intrigued to find out what the score is. And, and finding out that the family even went further than that, and they were these very, very poor family who lived in um, East Ham. And so a lot of the book ended up being about this idea of working out where you're from. And, and you're trying to find where you're from all the time, the bits where you the, go back to the north to try and find yeah, the actions that aren't I quite think, there. I think it was always, I always had this weird um, thing of like moving down from the north where I'd felt very happy and always think if I go back there, that will make me feel happy again. And I went there and it, it, it didn't work, obviously. <laughs> you know. So I think I've always been trying to look for a sense of place of where, where I'm from and who I am. 
Because I think if you have a very sort of strict but loving upbringing, sometimes it can be quite hard mm. to kind of locate yourself. Um, so I think I kept <laughs> looking for it in history or in different places rather than actually coming to terms and to grips with things within. And then at the core of it is, you know, you've had a breakup, there's issues with your sexuality, but really it's childhood experiences that you've sort of come to understand and that are really the product of that period of incredible silence and homophobia and what that does to people. I wondered if you can talk about that a bit, and particularly the thing that I found really moving about it is how much you unpack the relationships between trauma and addiction. I, I had a... Um, well, it, the reason, it ended up being in the book, this particular incident, due to... Remember the Milo, that alt-right idiot? Um, mm. The other year, he made some joke about teenage boys having sex with older men, and what, it didn't do him, him any harm. And I, and I found that personally really upsetting. So when I was a teen, when I was 14, and subsequently I had some terrible experiences with um, older men, I, it just, and I wrote a piece about this for The Quietist, and it really hit a nerve with people, and I got a, a lot of quite moving communications about, from other people who've been through that. And I thought it's such a taboo that's just not discussed. We, we, for all the Me Too and You Tree mm. and all of this, we, it's almost like sexual abuse has become part of celebrity culture. We see these people as these powerful monsters abusing their position, but mm. there are these people, men, men lurking in every town and now on the internet, you know. And I wanted to write about how those men and how, you know, what they did to me had a terrible <laughs> impact on kind of compulsive behavior patterns around sexuality subsequently. Um, because I thought there's just not a nuance about that. You know, there's, there mm -hmm. is this sort of celebration of older men and younger men in kind of culturally in a lot of gay culture that I was not comfortable with. I think for some people, and I've spoken to people for whom those kind of cross-generational experiences was, were, were very helpful and it was an introduction as well as to sex, but to gay culture and mm. art and community. And I think that's, maybe that's, that's different, that's okay. For me, it wasn't like that. And I, I, just don't, I think there's a lot of people out there who have been in these situations who, who've never been able to unpick how it's impacted them and they live with a lot of shame and a lot of unhappiness and because you know there's a new organization called survivors uk who are really really brilliant who deal with male victims of sexual abuse and that's only been going for a few years there's really not much help around and so i wanted to kind of put that into the into a public environment which you know wasn't the easiest thing to do but it was during this whole process that I be started to realise that sort of behaviour patterns were unhealthy and they were ruining intimacy and the ability to find intimacy and that that, that, that was the root mm. in the past. Which I think is an extraordinary nuance to be able to, to say that free expression of sexuality and sexual pleasure is a good thing and at the same time the compulsive pursuit of it is damaging. It's something that within sort of sex positive worlds can be very hard to say. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the biggest critiques I was expecting in the book, to be honest, from sort of, you know, we live mm. in a very sex positive climate and I think that's great. We, it can be oppressive. It can, well, because it's now, it's, you know, because we live in an incredibly binary time and that binary comes from every single wing of the political spectrum and I think they're... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Can be this this attitude of sex positivity is all sex is always brilliant, all promiscuity it's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no. There's, there's, there's no um, issue there. We can't question it. We can't. If, if yeah. somebody has had a traumatic sexual experience and they're dealing with it through promiscuity, that's sex positive and we can't question it. And I just felt that that didn't apply to me. And from f- talking to people, <coughs> a lot of the times that bravado crumbles a little bit when yeah. they really open up about it and I, I just it, I think it's, again it was just this this feeling that we, you know we everything every, all the de- debate supposedly around gender and sexuality and most things at the moment isn't really a debate it's a lot of people yelling at each other and I wanted to be able to do what the forest does have a have a play be a place of ambiguity and say this is for, <coughs> for telling my truth in a way that should hopefully encourage people to think their own truths too that's what mm. I wanted to do with it and to have different regions within a person in the same way that you have within a forest, there are regions of dark or there are regions of mystery. I think that's something that you articulate very well and very movingly. I don't know whether people in the audience saw the review in the Evening Standard, which Luca said it's okay for me to talk about, but that, that is an example of the sort of extraordinary reactions provoked by not just somebody talking about free expression of sexuality, but somebody talking about abuse yeah. triggered... I mean, what? How would you articulate it? Well, it was very bizarre. For anyone who didn't see the review... Um, you can Google it. Yeah, it's you can Google horrible. it. It's, it's basically a writer for the Evening Standard. I mean, he's got a... a um, he's sort of writing from a kind of old-school position of disliking bisexual... What's he called me? A fl- flip switch? Switch flipper or something? Yeah. Something like that. Switch hitter. Switch hitter. That's, thanks, Lee. Even um, worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these kind of, like, prejudiced terms against, you know... Bisexual people, and then he goes calls on to call me, call me needy, weedy, and seedy, which I actually quite like. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking, so I was going to get some badges made, but they weren't going to arrive in time. I was going to give everyone a weedy, needy, and seedy badge. Um, I was thinking about that as I was coming in. That two of those insults are about plants. Weeds are in the wrong place. Oh, there we they're go. the wrong kind yeah. of plants. And seeds, what? They're promiscuous. They're coming up. And plants are quite needy. You got water. Yeah. You? Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, but he does this sort of very, he calls me like teenage trollop and kind of like the old, you know, the old men, <laughs> these poor old men who uh, ended up doing things with me in public lavatories. I was kind of like, yeah, this is a bit weird, the Evening Standard defending dancing, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure this isn't in the new press code. Um, and and it, was, it was just really bizarre to sort of see somebody victim blaming. You know, he's essentially he was doing that she was drunk and wearing a short skirt kind of uh, mm. Argument, and it was just odd to see in this mm. in 2019. Um, but yeah, do Google I, I, Google the review. It's quite. I, I, it was it was odd reading. I was in the pub. And my friend Laura texted me saying, "Oh my God, sorry, sorry, it's about the Evening Standard review." And I was a bit freaked out. And then I read it, and it was it's such a bonkers review. It's kind of doesn't mm. hasn't really bothered me that much. And it says a lot more about the writer of the review than it does the book. But also the culture that I'm amazed that an editor ran it and didn't think in a Me Too moment, is this really an OK thing to be saying about people who are talking about childhood <laughs> sexual abuse? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is because the sex between teenage boys and older men isn't really talked about. Mm. 
And it that hasn't much. been framed enough about abuse as abuse. No, perhaps. I mean, you know, even the stuff around Kevin Spacey ends up being very confused. I mean, he's kind of the leading male Me Too person who's in the news, but yeah. even even that just doesn't feel quite like it's a good way of talking about it with him. Mm. You know, he's still a celebrity. It's just not most of these cases are not with famous people. Mm. You know, it's, it's it, we shouldn't be focusing on this. So a part of our yeah. obsession with celebrity that we we need to. Well, that's a whole other thing we need to work on. But I'm slightly concerned about how much of the Me Too and U Tree and all of this is cons is concerned <coughs> with with the famous or even to people in power, not just just ordinary people ordinary people who are who are predating actively or sort of strangely sub sub subconsciously covertly. Mm. Let's talk too about the place of religion in the book because that was another thing that I think has a very surprising handling it doesn't <coughs> it doesn't come out in the way at all in in this sort of book you might expect Derek Jarman style that sexuality is the escape route out of an oppressive Christian relationship a oppressive Christian childhood and that isn't at all the story you're telling no because I mean the whole point is supposed to be really honest and that wouldn't be the honest story for me to to tell I mean I think in some ways the kind of the religious oppression that didn't necessarily come from family, but the wider Christian world, definitely there was a sort of, well, if it's if you're thinking the sin is as bad as doing it, and I thought about this sin a lot, I'm going to go and do it a lot. Uh, or if you've done it once, you're you're damned forever. Well, I'm going to just keep doing it, keep doing it. But I, I had so many positive aspects um, from a religious upbringing. The, the love and the community and the sense of sharing and the togetherness. You know, my dad's old church, we'd have... 40 different nationalities on a Sunday all singing together and that to me is really beautiful where else do you get that for all this talk of multicultural London that doesn't happen very often mm. and that was a church that welcomed gay people as well there was a lot of gay couples at that my dad's church in London and so and, and I've, I've, I've been so fucked off with the atheist movement the new they're just such a miserable miserable bunch like there's some book coming out where with a, a conversation with, with Richard um, Dawkins and three other men um, always, always men, men. Uh, and, and it's apparently it's with, this is the conversation that kick started the atheist movement in 2008 and it's called the four horsemen I mean what load of pompous <laughs> absolute pompous wallies these people are and they're, they're, they're so joyless you know, and there's obviously there's loads of flaws with religion. I mean, everyone's aware of that. And there's hip hypocrisy, and there's persecution, and 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 I, I read things from the Evangelical Alliance, which was actually an organisation that I think was connected to what my dad's work in the nineties, and I, and I and I absolutely livid by it, and the way mm. they treat people, and the way they treat gay queer people and you know the women are oppressed by it and, and there's roles you're supposed to keep and I've been in church services where it's just just I'm just angry by by what they're saying but on the other side there are loads and loads of positive things you know even off top of your head it's like all the food banks in Britain are run by church by Christian charities just simple things like that mm. and to me it's a thing of, of of love and compassion and so when I was writing the book it did keep coming in this sort of, because I think I was battling a lot with religion at that time and, you know, struggling with sexuality and thinking, am I just a repressed homosexual because of my religious upbringing? I'm really fighting with that. And then, you know, as Jenny said, she was like my editor, she said, it's right, God bothery, this book. <laughs> um, a classic <laughs> Jenny Lord editorial comment. And it was quite weird. I, I thought it was a book about Epping Forest with a bit of sex in it. And then 
<laughs> and then I didn't read it after I finished it. And then, and then I was doing the audio book. And I was like, oh, it's actually a book about r religion and sex and shame. Really, that's kind of real. It's, it's quite odd. What did Paul say that. about it? The Stations of the Cross. Oh yeah, I did an interview with uh, Paul Flynn, who's an amazing writer. Who used, used to be at Attitude and now writes for the Queer Bible, which is a brilliant website you should look at. Uh, he interviewed me last week for that, and he said it's so amazing that you, 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 you know, the Stations of the Cross thing. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, the way that the whole story of the book is is absolutely mapped to the different bit, the, the, each station of the cross. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I'm afraid it isn't, Paul. I, not consciously. And he was like, that's the whole angle of my review. And I said, wait a minute, you, you must have grown up religious. And he said, yeah, I was Catholic. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, you're all into that sort of stuff, aren't you? Me Methodists are a bit more. We don't have all these, the sort of the, the spells and everything. But, but it, it, it was very interesting to hear from a, a kind of a lapsed Catholic, uh, who, a, a gay lapsed Catholic, about he, that he got the Stations of the Cross thing and a very positive reading of religion, mm. which, which I, I'm really quite pleased, pleased about, really, that that comes across so strongly. I think if I'd mm. been as conscious of that, I might have toned it down. Because it's so unfashionable, really. You yeah. know, to be positive about religion, it's a bit like, oh, you know, um, Homer Simpson walking backwards into the hedge. Everyone does that. Um, and, you know, growing up when your dad's a vicar, everyone thinks they're going to come round and it's going to be terrifying. And dad did have a bad moustache in the 90s that probably didn't help. But, um, you know, and he, he did, did frighten people at Halloween. Oh, that's great, though. I love that. Yeah. When, when trick-or-treaters round, came round, um, he'd give them a good lecture about why they were messing with evil forces and they should be very careful about this. And uh, we never got tricked. <laughs> so, and, and I think he's got a point, to, to be honest. I think he's got a point. But never mind, that's, yeah. I'm not going to start preaching at you about Halloween. <laughs> I think we're getting to the point where you guys should ask some questions too. But I'm just going to ask one more, which is, what's your relationship with the forest now? A lot better. The, I mean, I didn't want to write a book that had some kind of redemptive ending. And I thought for a long time there wasn't going to be one. But then it ended up where I'm in an amazing relationship and now and that that came into the book and I'd started going up to the forest and doing conservation work <laughs> and cutting down great bits of it um so to, you basically to, destroyed the forest well there's <laughs> paradoxically it, it's it's better for the forest since the since the management stopped in the forest mm. in the 19th century it's it's grown up and closed over and this is another of these things you know it's the whole rewilding chat at the moment that's very a very hot topic. This idea yeah. that nature should be left alone. I mean, there's no nature in Britain, in England at least. I mean, my bits in Scotland, but everything in England is completely touched by human hands. Epping Forest, you know, it seems like this wild landscape, but it's in, entirely made by people. There's nothing natural there. A thousand years ago, it was 90% small leaf lime was the tree species, and now that species does not exist in the forest. A um, hundred years ago, there was no holly and no silver birch. Now there's loads of it. And when it was part of a managed, uh, when it was a managed landscape being grazed and cut regularly, it was very biodiverse with lots of bird species and insect <coughs> life and wildflowers and heather and all sorts. And as it, the forest has rewilded and gone back to nature, it's actually reduced the richness of the ecology. So I go up to the forest and do conservation work and... I have some leaflets here, if anyone would like some good exercise. <laughs> and, you, know, you can take the boy out of the church, but I'm still, you know, you can't. <laughs> Love a leaflet. Um, but, yeah, and it's, it, I, I started going to the forest to do conservation work, and it's, it was just this, 
it's the only bit of physical exercise I've ever loved. You know, I, I have a very difficult relationship with masculinity in my own body and sport, hated sport. And it was always it's problematic because it's not only humiliating, but there's also a sexual free song, which would be a bit compulsive, is dangerous. And, and whereas, whereas going to the forest is amazing exercise and, and just sort of blew my mind. And, and just, you know, life, having written it all down, I suppose, is all a bit... A bit bloody cliched, isn't it? You know, you write a book about it and now I feel fine in the forest and it's a lot better. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I have a lot better relationship with the forest. And I would say go there. I mean, it amazes me. People, it's not far. So you could get there in 25 minutes from where we are now. You could be in the forest. It's an incredible place. Um, and I do think I'd encourage everyone to, to go there and make use of it and go off the paths and don't cut it down unless you've got permission. But, you know, it's a wonderful place. Does anyone have questions? this range of territory we've covered i was going to ask was it easier for you to write it as autobiographical or as a writer make a fictional piece out of it so you wouldn't would you would you still feel the same way at the end result of the book that's a good question i have sometimes thought why the fuck did i just write it as a, a novel and then not have to deal with the fact that it's all true and all because it's just very explicit some of it and very honest but I think, I think it didn't really occur to me to write it as fiction just because it started off being this forest history book that then gradually morphed into something about me. And I, 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 I don't know, I, I just felt that I, if I could write something really honest and not be afraid and then really go for it in a way that it might be a book that's helpful to other people, which that sounds a bit cheesy, but that was kind of like genuinely what I was thinking. Now, I kind of wrote it for my 14-year-old self, in a way, to be, you know, who was a bit of a mess and then got progressively more of a mess as years went on, saying, you know, it, it, will be, it can be okay, you know, life can be, it, it, will, it will work out. And I think maybe a novel wouldn't have that same impact. Maybe we live in a slightly exhibitionist, confessional age where this sort of book is able to connect with people in a way perhaps a novel wouldn't necessarily. I'm not sure. Another question in the corner. I don't know whether this will actually feel like a relevant question, but I'm so conscious that you're in conversation with someone who's written a book, The Lonely City. And I was just very interested in whether the forms of loneliness that might be experienced in the forest, so in a sense it's also a question to both of you, I suppose, the forms of loneliness that might be experienced in the forest are intrinsically very different from hmm. the forms of loneliness that we do associate with the city and which, of course, in The Lonely City is so well described in such complex and, and subtle ways, particularly in the idea that the sight of other people is always there when you're in the city. You know, you're usually close to some other people with whom there might be no connection. So it, it was just a, a thought, really, hmm. about the relationship between these two modes of being. That's really interesting because actually Luke's forest is quite populated and there's lots of bits where he's sort of r running through it and feeling like there are people watching or their eyes around. So I, I think it does have that sense. But actually what the, one of the things that I found most familiar reading it was the role that shame plays in loneliness. And actually it's interesting when you're talking about those sort of adult male, young boy relationships, that that's, it mirrors so closely to David Wanarovich's experiences in that sort of Times Square man-boy network where 
these are people who are being very predatory with a young boy, but also it's a sexual awakening. And that very sort of queasy ground that it's set on felt very familiar when I was reading your book. And I think it's an experience that an awful lot of people share. Mm. I mean, men and women and straight and gay, that there is that sexual opening up to relationships that turn out to have had a power imbalance that you don't see at the time and recognise afterwards was appalling. So it, a lot of it did feel like there was there was all sorts of crossovers. And at the same time, Epping Forest isn't really like New York. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I did, I did feel that loneliness is a big part of it, really. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of it is, uh, is about the loneliness of bisexual men, I think. Not fitting into not, either. Yeah, you're not fitting in and, and the closeting mm. of bisexual men which I think is still which is why you know why cruising areas for instance still exist I think in the, in the internet age is because there's mm. men for whom they can't take the risk of having going online to meet other men because they're in such closeted places and obviously that has massive impacts on families back home and so on and I think that's particularly relevant as Livia says Epping Forest is it's very it's odd because it's not like other forests because it mm. has London it looks like it does because of London's demand for wood which meant that the trees were pollarded which means they look as they are you can always hear London wherever you are there is something quite I mean I've always found the city to be uh, the, the loneliness is a loneliness that either I find comforting or I, I, I feed off it in sometimes a negative way uh, particularly in my early 20s when I first moved here Whereas the loneliness in the forest, it's, it's, it's strange because particularly at night, there's a chapter in the book where I go for, a, I cleverly decide that yeah. if I go in the forest at night, that's going to make me feel better. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have a, a really terrible experience because I think suddenly you, you come off the, the train at Chingford and past the pub and everything and then suddenly it's like, boom, you're in this very dark environment. Yeah. And that loneliness then... Is, it was, is very difficult to deal with. But then there's people, you know, I talk to people who live in the countryside and they, I mean, that's part of why they, I think people, rural dwelling people get quite annoyed with a lot of the twee nature fetishization is because they're like, this is just where we live. You know, we walk along the country lanes and we're not imagining goblins around the corner. It's just nonsense. It, we, this is where we live and we work and it's our normal existence. So I think it's quite subjective, those, those ideas of loneliness and the urban versus the rural. Congratulations on the book. Luke, as a rival publisher, I should declare an interest <laughs> in your answer to this question. Um, but <laughs> a, rival but, a rival but supportive publisher. There's obviously been, over the last decade or so, a, a huge boom in nature writing. Do you, this is a question for you as well, Olivia. Do you think it's now exhausted? Do you think there is a way forward and what that way forward may be in terms of uh, re-energising what might be a slightly tired genre. I think that's something that you've tried to do in this book. Right. What comes next? It's, more, it's sort of a question that I want to find the answer yeah. to. For professional obviously. reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must admit, I, I went to Stone Newington Bookshop. For my, for my friend wrote the um, book about Weatherspoon's carpets. And there was a we, and there was a launch there, and then I I was quite pissed. I looked up and I saw the kind of the nature writing shelf, and it was just just this sort of weird pastel coloured woodcut wall. And I at that moment I did kind of go. That was a very, actually a very pivotal moment because I was like, I can't, I don't want to write one of these books, and I can't write one of these books. I just don't have it in me. And I think I wanted to originally, and then I was actually, I'm, my head's, I'm too fucking mad or something to be able to do one of these books because I think you know, there's a lot of beautiful writing in that genre. I've got a lot of those books, and there's some there's people who are still writing brilliant books, but there's, 
it's all connected to that tweefication and there's a slight smugness sometimes and a complacency and um, a lot of privilege. You know, I, oh, I just happened to have bought a farm and now I'm going to write all about it. And you kind of think, mm. you know, Roger Deakin is an amazing writer, a beautiful writer, but not everybody could in 1960, whatever it was, float off to the countryside and buy a moated manor house and then have this kind of incredibly enriched lifestyle within it. You know, that mm. is incredibly exclusionary. And... I, I've just, yeah, I was reading a lot of that when I was trying to start writing the book, and I just kept finding it frustrating and off putting. I felt I couldn't, I wasn't good enough to be like those people or something. So it's a very weird, it's a very weird genre. I actually think there's going to be, a, I, I, you know, I, you work in publishing, Lee, so you know how fashions work, but I, I kind of think there's, there's room for people to kind of explore that form because place is always going to be interesting. Um, we're in a time of environmental crisis, so we need writing that's yeah. strong about the environment and whatever nature is. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see writing that is a bit more visceral and um, involves sexuality. Um, I know there's, there's a lot of movement to diversify nature writing. You know, I'm a white bloke. Most of the people who are writing it, I mean, I think gender-wise it's quite split, but it's very, very white. Um, I'm working with Kirstine McNish on the Borough of Culture for Walton Forest, and we're working with Willow Herb Journal to recruit writers of colour to just try and make an effort to, to, to support people who want to write about landscapes who aren't from traditional demographics. So I actually think it's an exciting time for the form because it's going to change radically, and I think that's, that's sort of overdue. And particularly, you know, with Brexit happening and... You, it's inescapable that the roots of things like Brexit and conservative power are in the rural areas, and there's, and there's nationalism. Nationalism uses rural aesthetics and identity in order to, as a sort of power source. So I think the time is right for a lot of actually quite serious, um, gritty writing that questions how we see nature. So I don't think it's. I think it's just going to take a new a new form really, hopefully. Talking about visceral writing, when I read the book, I kept, I'd wondered about who your influences were as a teenager because I kept thinking of D.H. Lawrence. Some of the phrasing particularly reminded me of Gertrude Morell looking at the moon when she's heavily pregnant and kind of reflecting upon her rather, you know, screwed up Slightly life. Like Sorry, it's rather, her, rather screwed up life. And Thomas Hardy as well. So I wondered who... You know, well, they sang to me. Yeah. Well, I was thinking the Evening Standard Review. I was very annoyed there wasn't any Thomas Hardy yes, in the book. Yeah. But I, um, yeah, I mean, when I when I was a teenager, Tom, I, I loved Thomas Hardy. He he was one of my favourite writers. I mean, I'm not, it's weird because I've not read t, uh, Thomas Hardy for since school. You know, it, it's it's quite odd. Um, I mean, the the massive influence was Derek Jarman's Modern Nature um, that I read about four or five years ago, and that just blew me away. I think it's it's by far away one of my favourite books. I think the way he writes about Dungeness, and it's, it's all about borderlands, isn't it, that book? It's between life and death and feeling life slipping away and his frustration with the commercialisation of art and film and, the, and putting himself into something and feeling that as, as his body's falling apart, but then writing so beautifully about Dungeness and about Hampstead Heath, that was a massive influence. But it's odd, really. Probably a lot of stuff that when I was read when I was a kid that's just sat there in the subconscious rather than things more recently. 
Anyone else? We're probably getting tight on time, so maybe one more. I ask about loneliness and how you felt about writing about loneliness publicly, and particularly whether it's a, a part of normal everyday life for all of us or a state for a minority of people. I think, I think there's an element of loneliness that I write about which is more to do with intimacy than perhaps some of the loneliness that you were writing about in Lonely City. For me, the, there's something very, very lonely about a overly active sexual existence that doesn't contain any intimacy and, mm. and just the constant going back into situations in a search for something, a, a self-validation and a self-empowerment to, uh, to use one of those irritating current words in a way that I think it's, it, it can be quite a negative thing if you're seeking empowerment from other people through promiscuous sexuality that can be a really lonely experience and I think that was that was kind of the loneliness that I was looking to write about dealing with in the book. I thought we might end with one last tiny reading. I guess this is about the about the trees of the forest really which well you'll see. For me, the forest was becoming a place of vulgar chaos. In the half-light, the misshapen forms of the trees within the forest seemed to be moving, boiling up out of the ground like lava. The trees of Epping Forest have a fantastical appearance thanks to centuries of pollarding, the process of forest management whereby they're cut on a regular cycle for firewood or building materials. Once cut, the tree sends up new growth from an increasingly distorted trunk or bole. Pollarding prolongs a tree's life, but a continuous cutting makes them take on grotesque forms. Cow's udders, a pair of buttocks climbing into a hollow, old men's balls, a phallus between thighs, great heavy warty growths, welts like parted vulva. I stumbled on one that was the spitting image of Bart's bottle-sucking baby sister Maggie from The Simpsons. Alone as I was in the heart of the darkening wood, the deformed shapes added to my disconcerting awareness that I was surrounded by thousands of living beings, connected by the invisible network of mycelium fungi through which they communicate, send warnings and share nutrients. I felt as if the forest ought to hum, to be whispering around me, to sound alive. But I'd stare at those trees up close and become lost in the whole magical, gigantic organism silent aside for the sigh of the winds through a billion bare winter trigs. Mute to the human ear it might be, but as my walks increased in frequency, my internal conversation with the place ebbed and flowed from a whisper in a silent glade to a rage in the heart of a storm. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.